This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the word of the Lord. So, as it is the new year, I think we all recognize that this is the time of year where we make promises to ourselves that we'll only keep for about two weeks, right? But it is sort of the the ethos of this time. And so, in respect of that, uh, Paul and I decided to be a little bit opportunistic and thought this would be a great time to start a series on the spiritual disciplines. So if you're unfamiliar with that term, this is a term that the church has used for for many centuries to reflect the practices that Christians do to grow in their faith. And so our desire to do this series now is not so that we can just make your list of New Year's resolutions super long. Maybe your list is already really long, and so the thought of a pastor coming and saying, hey, here's all these other spiritual disciplines you need to do might seem a bit overwhelming. Or maybe it may come across a little bit like, hey, here's what you really should add to your list. I know you have your list that you made, but if you want to be really spiritual, you'll do these things. That, that, that's not our heart at all. Rather, we want to just seize the moment where maybe as a culture and maybe individually and as a community, we're a little bit sensitive to the idea of reflecting on our habits and reflecting on the, the, the patterns in our life that we'd actually like to change or maybe ways that we want to grow. And so since we're sensitive to that this time of year, we thought, why not spend some time reflecting on the habits and the practices that Christians do in order to grow in their faith? Well, why don't we spend time as a church reflecting on those, those things and, and also holding them out to see that these things are beautiful, they're powerful, they're worthy of doing. And then also to encourage you. Because if you're anything like me, you start talking about spiritual disciplines and you get mixed emotions. Maybe there's some sense of desire that you have, like, I really would like to practice these things, I really would like to grow in these things. Or maybe there's times in your life where you've experienced the fruit of these things. So, you know what it's like to grow in certain spiritual disciplines and the, the, the joy that comes with that or, or the sense of experience with God that comes with that. And so you long for that and you hunger more for that. So really when we talk about spiritual disciplines, maybe there's some positive emotion, positive feeling, positive thoughts that come. But there's also the negative side, the, the, the frustration that you may have had that sometimes these things just don't seem to have power and look, just like all of you, I struggle with this. I struggle with discipline. And so I, I include myself in this. When we, when we talk about spiritual disciplines, there's a whole host of emotions that come through. However, here's what we can do. We can, one, embrace the challenge. We can be honest. Look, we all struggle. We all want to grow. It's okay. But that doesn't change the fact that God has called us to practice these things. God has laid these things out in, our wor- in his word for us to 
embody and live out. But, but here's the other side of that too. There's incredible promise with this. God has promised to work through them. God has promised to bless them. God's spirit and his power work through these practices to transform us. And so we have an incredible amount of hope. So we need to spend some time confronting these two truths and being honest about these two truths. And strictly speaking, spiritual disciplines, there's no magic list in Scripture like say the fruit of the spirit. So we, we just went through Galatians. And so you can go to Galatians and read through the chapter and see, oh, there's a list. This is the fruit of the spirit. There's no such chapter, no such place in scripture that says, hey, here are the spiritual disciplines. However, what the church has recognized for centuries is there are particular practices within scripture that are repeatedly emphasized and given focus and, and spoken about in a way that says, hey, these are the things to help you grow in your faith and become more like Christ. So we're not making these things up as we go along. We are drawing from Scripture. We want to draw practice from Scripture. But as we said and as we consider from Scripture, these practices have promise with them. They've been empowered by the Spirit. God has blessed them. We don't need to wonder if he's going to work. We don't need to doubt if these practices are effective means to grow in love and joy and godliness and more like Christ. This is the great hope that we have, that God's promise is sure and his power is great. So there's a lot of reason to give ourselves to these practices. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to set the table for us. But before we jump into any specific practices... I want us to have a clear framework for how we even understand spiritual disciplines. And I really want to start by first changing our terms. Like, admittedly, spiritual disciplines has a long pedigree, but it also has a ton of baggage. Because the term, if, if I can be honest for just a second, sounds very self-centered in some ways. Now, this is not a knock on people who use the term and people who have written about these, but when you hear the term spiritual discipline, it sounds a lot like someone exercising a lot of self-will and self-discipline and self-focus in order to practice these things. And so it almost has this connotation that we start with our own efforts. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. So rather than calling these spiritual disciplines, well, we've entitled this series Habits of Grace because the foundation that we start is grace. Yes, there are practices. Yes, there are habits. But those flow from grace. And so here's our definition of habits of grace for us. They're habits we cultivate that are shaped and empowered by God's grace and thereby strengthen us in his grace. And so the foundation is not our effort. It's not our discipline, but God's grace. And so from that starting point, from that framework, here's what I want to unpack. First, I want to just look at God's grace to us and why this matters and how this shapes our practice of these habits. And then I want to spend a little time talking about what it means to have grace-empowered habits. So let's spend a few moments reflecting on God's grace to us first. So in John 15, Jesus himself gives us this framework for grace that shapes and then empowers our habits. So let's follow Jesus' statement here and consider what he has to say. So in verse 4, 
He says, abide in me and I in you. So he starts with this incredible union that you and I have with Jesus. Here is this incredible truth that Jesus is in us and we are in him. He says to his disciples, you are in me and I am in you. And so I'm not a fan of the, the statement, Christianity isn't a religion, but a relationship. Maybe you've heard that term, maybe you've used it. The reason I'm not a fan is because I think it oversimplifies a few things, but it does capture something super important. It, it does capture this truth, that to be a disciple of Jesus is to live in a unique, close, personal relationship and union and connection with Jesus. And not only Jesus, but also God the Father. Earlier in John 14, Jesus says this, because I live in you, because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So don't, don't miss the punch here. Don't, don't miss the impact Jesus is making. This is profound. Jesus is saying, hey, look, God the Father and myself, God the Son, we've had this incredible intimate relationship and union from eternity past, perfect in love and joy and oneness. There's this depth of relationship that goes beyond anything you and I can imagine. And then Jesus says, hey, when you're in me, I have brought you into this relationship and we have this vital connection, deep personal union one to another. And when you're connected to Jesus, what does he do? He brings you into that relationship he has with the Father. So we're brought into that Trinity VIP club. It's this incredible relationship that we are brought into through Christ. And Jesus is highlighting that. Abide in me and I in you. He's starting from this place of relationship, of union. And the rest of the New Testament proclaims and shouts and celebrates this union and the power that it has in our lives. So just to give a few examples. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here's the truth. Through our union with Christ, our old nature, our old self has died. It's been crucified. But now Christ lives in us. His spirit, his power, his victory, his freedom lives in us and has utterly transformed how we live our life. Then in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul says something similar. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if, you've been, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The death of Christ defeats and puts an end to our old sinful nature. And then his resurrection power brings new life to our souls and one day to our bodies. And do you see that life as a Christian is entirely wrapped up in Christ? His death to sin equals our death to sin. His resurrection life is our resurrection life. What he accomplishes, he shares with us. The life that he has, he gives to us. This is the good news of the gospel. He's not a distant savior. 
Our salvation is not some abstract philosophical idea. It is brought about by a real Savior who really came to earth, who really lived, who really died, who was really resurrected and who really has ascended and who is really coming back. And the salvation that you and I have is born from a real relationship, a real union, a real connection with Christ. This is where we must start. And so to really reiterate a truth we considered last week, the defining truth of what it means to be a Christian is not adherence to religious and moral practice, though we certainly have religious practices and we certainly follow a moral way of life. It's not intellectual agreement and assent to certain doctrinal truths, even though we assent to doctrinal truth. Look, those things are meaningless. They're powerless apart from this, that the true disciple of Jesus is one who has been brought into close personal union and relationship to the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. This union brings salvation. This is the union that breathes new spiritual life into spiritually dead sinners. This is the union that brings renewal. This is the union that brings a new identity and new meaning and new purpose and new desire to us. This is where we must start. And here's the good news of the gospel is that this union is not something we earn. We didn't earn our way into that Trinity VIP club. It is all of grace. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. There's the union language again. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So the union, the blessings, the redemption, the salvation, it's all from the riches of God's grace to us. Look, we didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve these blessings. We don't deserve salvation and this forgiveness and life and renewal. We don't deserve to be in that union with the Trinity. In and of ourselves, we're rebellious sinners. We're in rebellion against God. We hate God. We're trying to fight against God. But because God is so rich in grace, because he is rich in giving us undeserved favor, he sends Christ to die for us, to, to bring redemption through his blood, to bring us every spiritual blessing. And here's what this passage tells us. It's not just that God is rich in grace and the amount that he possesses. No, God is generous. He lavished his grace upon us, lavished. This is not being stingy or just a little bit. This is not just, hey, here, here's a relatively good-sized portion. No, this is lavishing. Maybe parents, this past Christmas, you lavished your kids with presents. Like the, the presents were stacked up to the top of the tree. And maybe there's a little regret you're feeling right now about that. But, but this is the picture, this is the idea that God has poured out. He's lavished. He's gone above and beyond. It's extravagant. He's not held back. His grace is extravagant to us in Christ. And so look, when Jesus says to abide in him and he in us, he's talking about living from a place of extravagant grace. 
in close personal union with a God who lavishes grace. And so church, when we start having conversations about habits of grace, we must have this category in our mind, a God who lavishes his grace upon us, a God who is abundant in his grace to us, a God who has brought us into a deep, personal, intimate relationship with him because he loves us. And so no matter what else we say, no matter what angles we take and the ways that we seek to practice these things, this is the truth we stand and we start from. Because if we're not firmly established in grace and union with Christ, look, our understanding and our approach to the habits of grace, they're going to be flawed. We're going to see them as a means to try to gain and create connection with God rather than living from and experiencing the connection we already have. We're going to try to earn relationship rather than resting in and going deeper into the relationship we already have. We may find ourselves trying to earn grace rather than living from that lavish grace that God has given us. We can struggle to see that God is near. But rather, we'll see God is distant, and maybe we feel like we have to coax him near through our spiritual disciplines and these habits, rather than living from an intimacy and nearness to God. So before we go any further, can we commit to letting grace be our starting points? Can, can we live from and see that we practice these things in relationship to God, in relationship to Christ, that the Spirit is within us, that we have been brought near to God, that he loves us, that his grace is abundant, that we have every reason to celebrate and rejoice and be set free to run at these habits. So let's start from a place of grace. So if grace is our starting point, what does it mean to live grace-empowered habits? But when it comes to our spiritual habits, when it, when it comes to these practices, starting from grace keeps us from two pitfalls that we need to be aware of. The first is self-sufficiency. Look, self-sufficiency is the air we breathe in our culture. I mean, this is one of the things that Americans pride themselves on, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you got it, make yourself, make something of yourself, hard work and grit. Look, to whatever degree there's truth in that, there's also an incredible amount of pride in that. And there's an incredible amount of deception in that if we live our lives thinking that we can be self-sufficient. And especially true if you are a Christian trying to live your Christian life in self-sufficiency. But we're so good at this. Because, look, a lot of us, most of us, maybe all of us, we, we have resources, we have gifting, we have intelligence, we have ability to do some really, really good things. And so we can actually make some progress in and of ourselves. We can ride the self-sufficiency train for quite a while. But here's what will ultimately happen without fail. We will bump up against our limits, and once we do, we pull back. 
We will go as far as our intelligence takes us, as far as our money and resources take us, as far as our, whether we not got enough sleep or not. We, we will ride self-sufficiency until we hit our wall. And when God calls us to go past that, we'll stop. And immediately we'll be confronted with this. We're actually not trusting the Lord. Well, we're not actually depending upon his power and his grace. And church, when that happens, man, we might have the appearance of good things, but ultimately it's going to be fruitless. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 15. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Look, we need the union with Christ. We need grace to be empowered. If, if our habits, if our life as a Christian is going to have any power, any fruit, we must be connected to Christ. It does not matter how much activity. It does not matter how impressive doesn't matter how big of a church or how big your gospel community is or how much Bible you know. Apart from the power of Christ and union with Christ, you can do nothing. Oh, look, to, to give a little bit of an illustration, here, here's a, a power outlet. Do you, these things are like commodities in our world now. I mean, how many of you have been in a situation where you were scrambling to find one of these? They're like gold, right, in our iPhone world. Uh, Mindy and I, when we were down in Oklahoma with our family, we asked our nieces and nephews, hey, how do we best entertain teens at a party? And they said, just set them up in a room with a lot of power outlets. I'll, I'll leave that to you, teens, whether that's accurate or not. But anyway, this is a wonderful resource. But if you were to come up here and plug your phone into this, hoping to charge your phone, would it charge? No, why? Because it's not connected to power. This is a wonderful tool, a wonderful resource, but it's absolutely worthless if it's not connected to power. And this is how you and I will live our lives. Lots of activity, lots of gifting, lots of talent, lots of doing good things, but be utterly powerless and fruitless because we're not connected to Christ we're not abiding in Christ. And so here's what this truth tells us about our habits and these practices. One, that in order for them to be effective, we have to be connected to Christ. So you have to believe in Jesus. You have to have turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ and have that transforming power have taken place and being brought into that union. If you haven't, then your religious activity will never be fruitful. But, but here's what the, this also tells us, that the habits that we're going to be talking about are ways for us to stay connected and stay dependent on the power. Ways for us to depend on and rely on the grace of God in our lives. Because here's the truth about these habits that we're going to be talking about. They're wonderfully humbling. They're wonderful at directing us away from our own sufficiency and our own power and towards the grace of God. I mean, just consider 
the, the, the habits that we're going to be talking about over the next 10 weeks. Meditating, studying, reading scripture. Well, what does that do? That is shaping your mind, shaping your heart around God's word, a truth that is outside your own mind and your own heart, something that, is, that you need to receive and submit to. What about prayer? Prayer is a wonderfully humbling because what it does is it moves us away from self-sufficiency and depending upon the Lord. Lord, unless you move, this isn't going to happen. How about confessing sin? That's a great one because we have to be honest about our sin and we have to bring it out into the open and say, Lord, I can't hide this. I need to confess this in order to be healed and forgiven and transformed. Or how about rest? Oh, I can't wait till we talk about rest. (laughs) Because rest tells us, hey, guess what? You're not God. And at times you need to stop and trust in the Lord that he is sovereignly in control, that he is at work even when you're asleep and that you can't control no matter how hard you may try. You cannot control your life. Over and over and over again, these habits of grace, they're habits that cause us to rest in grace. They move us away from self-sufficiency into greater dependence upon the abundant, lavish grace of God in our lives. And so they, grace-empowered habits move us away from self-sufficiency. But here's what they also do. The other pitfall is to use grace as an excuse for passivity. You may be familiar with the let go and let God. Again, in some ways, well-intentioned, but also flawed if we're not careful. Because this counsel gives the impression that grace and God's work in our life allows us to just sort of sit back and do nothing. No, grace never makes us passive. See, Jesus telling us to abide, it's a command. Like if you go into the original Greek, it's a command. If you go into the English, it's a command. If you see the translation in Spanish or Russian, doesn't matter. It's a command. Abide in me. That is proactive. Jesus is calling his disciples to action. It is living from a reality of grace, but that reality of grace causes us to live proactively. And so grace-empowered action, this is all over the place in Scripture, but again, just to give you a couple of examples. The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 15, says this about the effect of the grace of God in his life. His, meaning God's grace towards me, was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That means the apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul was saying, hey, in my ministry, I worked harder. I went further. I did more than any of the other apostles. But what did he recognize? It wasn't his power. It wasn't his gifting. He wasn't being self-sufficient. He's saying, no, this is the grace of God at work in me. I worked harder because the grace of God that was work at work in me and with me. And then in Philippians 2, Paul writes this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Look, God is at work in us. His power is transforming us and giving us the desire and ability to live for him. And what does this lead us to do? Work. Work out, live out, expend effort outwardly what God is working inwardly. 
So the grace and power of God in us doesn't cause us to go passive, but actually empowers us to be active. It, it, it propels us towards action. As Dallas Willard reminds us, grace is not opposed to earning. Or excuse me, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. And so we are called to proactively grow in godliness and maturity. God doesn't bypass our efforts. He uses them. He empowers them. And so here's the truth for us that we must come to grips with. Look, in some ways, your growth as a disciple of Jesus, your maturity, the the renewal that is taking place in you, in some ways, that is completely outside your control. God sovereignly works in your life and in your heart in ways that you cannot control. And when he does that, it often unsettles us because he sort of goes after things that we don't necessarily want to go after. Or maybe sometimes things are a little bit slower than we want because God is wanting to go deeper in his transformation. So there's ways that this is out of our control at the same time. As scripture makes very clear, there are certain ways that this is in our control. There are certain ways that we are called to cultivate habits. We are called to walk in a particular way. We are called to grow in maturity. And that doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by going passive. That takes intentional effort. And so what we have to be willing to own is this. That wherever there is deficiencies in our growth, wherever we are frustrated in our walk with the Lord, wherever there is sin that still ensnares us, in some ways that is a reflection of our lack of efforts or our lack of being proactive. Now, I'm not trying to heap a bunch of guilt and say, hey, just go try harder. But we need to be honest that in some ways we we are where we are because of the habits that we've given ourselves to. We are where we are because of the choices that we've made and how to live our life. And so what these habits of grace call us to then is to say, hey, look, you're not a victim of your circumstances. You're not a victim of your own nature. You're not to be passive. No, rather because the spirit of God is at work in you, because he has promised to transform, because he has given us means, we can be proactive. And that's really the essence of these habits of grace is that because God works, because he has given us a spirit, and because the spirit works through means, scripture shows, hey, the spirit works through particular means. This is not just some abstract, theoretical, airy sort of like, yeah, the sp- I know the spirit works, but I'm not really sure how he does it. No, scripture says, hey, here are the means God has given to us. The means that the spirit is going to use and is for us to go and live those habits. As some theologians have put it, we need to put ourselves in the way of grace. If grace was like a river, we need to get into that river and let it hit us and let it move us and transform us. We need to put ourselves in the way of the Spirit through the means. So let me illustrate it this way, and this is borrowing from 
a, a really wonderful book called Union with Christ by Rankin Wilburn, which I, I highly recommend you all read. Probably one of the best practical uh, treatments on the doctrine of union with Christ you could ever read. And he uses this illustration to describe how these habits of grace work in conjunction with the Spirit. He says, think of sailing. So in order to sail, and if you've ever gone sailing, I've never actually been sailing, so I'm totally just talking from a description I've never experienced. But what is required for sailing? You need wind, right? You can't control the wind. The wind is a force of nature that you cannot control. That's like the Spirit. The Spirit is going to work sovereignly in ways that we cannot control. However, in sailing, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to sort of grab the wind. You're to use means, a sail, to connect with the wind in order to be moved. And so if, if you start out sailing, just getting the sail up is great. You get the sail up in the air, and the wind starts blowing, and you start going. You don't have a lot of control. You're not an expert, and it's a lot of work. And so this is a lot of, this, this looks like, like how we are when we first start, cultivating a new habit. Man, I'll get up off the ground, and I see the spirit kind of working, but it's, it really is a lot, it's pretty difficult. It takes a lot of effort. But here's what happens. Over time, as you become more skilled, as you become build better habits, and you get better at doing this. You begin to move not just in one direction, but you get to move in different directions with your sailboat. You're maturing. You're going deeper. You're becoming more skillful. And it's the same thing with us. When we develop these habits, we mature. We experience the Lord in greater and deeper ways. We become more like Jesus. We become more loving and more joyful and more peaceful we become more kind and more patient and good. We, we serve more. We are free to share the gospel more. We give. We love. And so we see this maturity happening. And what is causing that to happen? The Spirit? Yes. Without the Spirit, nothing happens. But also working through the Spirit, with the Spirit. And so church, here's what God's Word calls us to do. Raise your sail and keep raising it. And keep growing and keep learning, keep sowing to these habits. Because as we do, the Lord is going to move. The Lord is going to mature us. And we are going to experience wonderful things. But, but here's also what happens in sailing. So there's a part of the earth near the equator where sort of the winds will completely die down because of the warmer water. Called doldrums. Maybe you've heard this term used before, like I'm in the doldrums, meaning it's kind of boring, kind of just shifting around here, nothing really happening, doesn't feel like there's any momentum, any movement in my life. And look, sometimes we hit those moments in our walk with the Lord. Like we may be raising our sails through our habits and through our spiritual disciplines, but it doesn't feel like anything's happening. It doesn't feel like we're moving. And here's what's we need to recognize is going on. We need to recognize that sometimes the Lord makes us wait. Sometimes the Lord doesn't move in the ways that we want him to move because what he is doing is he's driving us deeper into trusting him. He's saying, wait on me, come after me. Because if you're anything like me, I can sort of get high off of a spiritual experience. Man, I, I read my Bible or I've been praying or I've been 
you know, doing these particular practices and I'm feeling really good about myself. And what happens is I'm, I want the feeling. I want to feel good about my walk. I want to feel positive about my walk. I want to feel good about my discipline. And so it's more about the feeling than it is about the Lord. And so to prevent that from happening, sometimes the Lord is like, hey, look, wait. Keep doing this. I'm not, I, I'm not, I haven't abandoned you. I haven't stopped working. I'm not, you're no longer, you know, you're not outside union with Christ anymore. It's just, he's waiting to work. And he's calling us to wait and be patient so we can go deeper. And so church, as we walk through these practices, as we commit to growing, we need to recognize that sometimes, sometimes we have to wait on the Lord. But waiting in and of itself isn't passive. It's also active. And so church, let us recognize that in all of this, the ultimate goal is not so we have more theology in, the, in our head and more knowledge in our head. Well, that's great. Yes, we want to know scripture. Yes, we want to grow in our theological understanding. But that's not the ultimate point. The ultimate point isn't to say, hey, look, I pray every morning before I start my day. Awesome, great, wonderful, that's important. But the point isn't to check the box. The point isn't to say, hey, look, you know, I fasted for 20 days and I broke my addiction to sugar. Hey, wonderful. That's important, but that's not the ultimate goal here. The ultimate goal is to know Christ. The, the ultimate goal is to have joy in him. The ultimate goal is to be connected more deeply to him. That is important to keep in mind. Especially, especially when it feels like we're in the doldrums especially when things feel like it's not happening. We need to remember, this is about knowing Christ, and so I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to rely on him. I'm going to wait on him to move into work and putting my hope in my promise, or putting my hope in his promise. And so church, whether we call these habits of grace or grace-empowered habits, or spiritual disciplines, or means of grace, whatever we want to call them. As we take the next 10 weeks to reflect on these practices, let us do so with hope and with expectation. Hope in the fact that we know God's grace has already been lavished on us, and hope in the fact that he has promised to use the practices. And so we can, be, we can expect that we'll grow. We can expect that God is going to change us and transform us. We can expect that we will experience deeper intimacy with God and renewal and greater godliness through these practices. And so let's commit ourselves to them. But let's not fear confessing the ways we've been lazy and even neglectful. Let's encourage and challenge one another to grow in these habits. And let's invite others into helping us grow really excited to see what the Lord does. Amen.